electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, off and running, the first Bitcoin ETFs wrapping an historic day of trading. He called the 2023 rally. Now, top strategist Ryan Dietrich has a big new call for this year. Hertz, not so good. Why Hertz flashing a major warning for Tesla? Dethroned one company briefly, grabbing Apple's most valuable crown. Bill Ackman's brawl with Business Insider, how his feud with the media just took a sudden turn. And hanging up the hoodie, Patriots legend Bill Belichick out in New England. But the intrigue over what happens next has only begun. We'll get reaction from former Cowboys coach Jason Garrett. All that and more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, folks, we're going to get to all that ahead. But first up on last call right now, a tense situation overseas rapidly escalating. NBC News is reporting that U.S. and U.K. military forces have just launched strikes against Houthi targets inside Yemen. According to two U.S. officials, they targeted multiple locations with both fighter jets and Tomahawk missiles fired from naval ships offshore. Strikes come as the Yemen-backed fighters have ramped up their attacks on Western shipping. Oil prices so far not reacting significantly to the news. They are up just a touch, about 2%. But it's not just the situation with the Houthis that is raising tension. Futures, by the way, also muted a little bit so far. Today, Iran attacking and seizing an oil tanker named the St. Nicholas. It was on its way from loading up with Iraqi oil bound for Turkey. U.S. Central Command today said the status of the ship's crew is unknown and that Iran is still holding five ships and 90 crew members from ships seized nearly a year ago. U.S. Vice Admiral Brad Cooper said that Iran's actions, quote, threaten maritime security and stability. As these attacks ramp up, the cost of shipping has also gone higher, as shipping companies are taking a longer and more expensive route around the Horn of Africa, and shipping insurance costs have also gone up. This means that oil prices could move higher, and also the goods that you buy that are coming off some of these massive cargo ships could also go up in price. Let's talk about the risk of further escalation and what it all may mean with RBC Capital Markets. Halima Croft. Halima, thanks for jumping on on short notice. Your reaction to these U.S. and U.K. attacks inside Yemen. I mean, this has been telegraphed throughout the day. The U.K. officials were leaking that they were going to commence strikes on these targets in Yemen. It came after weeks of the United States warning that there would be consequences for the relentless Houthi attacks on vessels in the Red Sea. The real question, Brian, is will this deter the Houthis? In 2016, the U.S. did take military action against the Houthis, targeted sites in Yemen, the Houthis stood down. The Houthis then, they were engaged in a very fierce war with Saudi Arabia. The question is now, will the Houthis welcome this? Will they essentially say, bring it on? Will Iran become potentially involved? 
Or will this be the path to the Houthis basically ceasing their attacks on ships in the Red Sea? I would say that uh, based on history and reading people like Halima Croft, I think your final uh, scenario that they're just going to stop is probably the least likely. You and I both know that they have been firing missiles into Saudi Arabia. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but they have no problem once in a while launching something inside of Saudi if that were to ramp up and or Iran were to get more active, say by mining parts of the Persian Gulf, what happens to oil? I mean, Brian, the real question for oil will be, does this expand to the Straits of Hormuz? Like that is the most mm -hmm. critical waterway for oil. In the near term, I think it'll be important to watch what happens to Red Sea infrastructure. Remember, the Saudis normalize relations with Iran in part to de-risk these type of attacks. The question is now, will the Houthis seek to expand the target list? Could critical Saudi sites like the Juzan refinery, the Jeddah refinery, potentially be targeted again by the Houthis? We are not anticipating that the UAE or Saudi will join this coalition effort against the Houthis because of their own security concerns. So again, there's a lot to play for in the region and we'll be watching very closely the path to expansion to potentially the Straits of Hormuz. Yeah, and, and the G, listen, I, I think I'm sure we have a map. There it is, because the geography, nobody needs to be a master of Middle Eastern geography. But to your point, we're talking right now about primarily the Red Sea. We're talking about the, the gap right. between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Sudan, right. and that little sort of the corner where they have to go through by right. Yemen, the, the Bab al-Bab Strait, which is exactly where some of these things are, are happening. This is a huge shipping quarter cargo and right. oil, but it is not the Persian Gulf. And I think you would agree. And if you don't, please say you do not, Halima, the Persian Gulf. And if something were to ramp there with Iran, that would be a greater oil, probably natural gas and inflationary trigger. I mean, that is the oil story. And Brian, we cannot write that off. In 2019, the Iranians targeted tankers off the coast of Fujairah in the UAE. They showed their capacity to hit a variety of infrastructure sites in the region, culminating in September 14th of hitting the Abqaiq facility mm -hmm. in Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil processing facility. Again, we are not there yet, but the fact that they seized this tanker today off the coast of Oman was a very important warning shot from the Iranians. That is not a de-escalatory move to seize that tanker. Yeah, and this tanker, and, and I want to give thanks to our friends at marinetraffic.com, and thanks to them, I know that this tanker was coming from Iraq. It loaded up with Iraqi oil and was headed yes. to Turkey. I have no way of knowing if the Iranians randomly picked this ship or they picked it because it happened right. to have Iraqi oil. But I have a feeling, Halima, and I'm sure you probably know, they have ways of tracking this kind of stuff. And if that was the case... I guess at least it wasn't Saudi oil because that might amplify it a little bit more. Can we read anything into that? Because let's not forget that what's happening in the Kurdish region of Iran, Iraq is also ramping up. And in fact, a friend of mine who's in his mid 40s with seven kids just got called up as a reservist to Iraq from New Jersey. I mean, I mean, Brian, there are multiple angles to this tanker. The United States had also seized a cargo on that tanker before because it was used apparently to bust sanctions by carrying contraband Iranian oil. 
So this tanker has a very interesting history that predates what happened today with the Iranian seizure. But you're right to focus on Iraq as well, because we keep talking about this war having three escalation pathways. There's Yemen. There is Lebanon that we've talked about repeatedly, and there's also Iraq. There have been multiple strikes targeting U.S. personnel in Iraq. We responded last week by targeting a senior Iranian-backed militia leader in Baghdad. That is a theater that we have to pay very close attention to for escalation as well. So it's not just a Yemen story. We're focused on Yemen tonight because of the U.S. military action. But we have to be watching all three escalation paths very closely in the coming days. Uh, there's three escalations. And let's not forget to your point, Amos Hochstein inside the State Department is over there now trying to de-escalate. You've got this. Okay. There are just so many hot spots happening all at the same time. Halima Croft, appreciate you jumping on. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you for having me. All right, welcome. All right, as we said, all of this could, could become inflationary to you if the price of goods and oil and natural gas pop higher. They may not, but they could. And today we did get a little bit of hotter inflation data with consumer prices coming in a little higher than expected last month. This month's increase in inflation, the first time the annual rate has gone up since back in August. And while the inflation rate has come down considerably from its highs back in June of 2022, it is still higher than what we have seen over much of the last decade. But how does all of this, not just what's happened in the Middle East, but inflation, the Fed, and everything else, impact your global money? Let's find out. And bring in Eric Vial. He is the head of global investments at T. Rowe Price. This is his first TV interview since assuming the job on January 1st. Eric, appreciate you coming on. Um, we wanted to just talk to you about plain old inflation, and we, and we will. We obviously have this, which could, could be inflationary. I, I am sure you and your team actively monitor what is happening overseas. How do you invest with and around it? Yeah, so what you have to do when you have a situation like this is try to make an assessment of what is it going to mean to the big drivers of the stocks that matter in your portfolio. And in this case, obviously, it's going to have a big impact on, in the short term, energy prices. And then what does that do to the transitory effect of inflation more broadly, which will have a much bigger impact on portfolios? I, I know this is all happening now, but it's been going on. It's been percolating and, and sort of ramping up for a couple of weeks. Has there been any impact so far? Uh, from these events? Yeah. Uh, no, in fact, what we've seen really is the energy prices have been lower than most people thought they would be. They were drifting up just a bit here over the past couple of weeks. But for the most part, energy prices have been lower um, than where folks thought they would be given the escalation of events. And please, again, correct me. And I'll say connect the dots. And I should say the dot plots because we're going to talk about the Fed. And yep. why I'm asking you about this is you, you, you deal with global equities. The Federal Reserve has a lot to say about which way global equities or U.S. equities in particular go. And inflation may have a lot to say about which way the Fed goes. So how far down the line do you go? So we look at all of these things, right? So the most important thing in the short term is going to be what this event and these events do to energy prices and then how that translates through and whether we think that's going to lead to much bigger impacts on the supply chain mm -hmm. because those could have longer duration impacts. Um, as you think about where we are from an inflation perspective, uh, we're really at a point now where even though this print today was a little bit hot, it feels like and we think that we're getting towards a point where the CPI is going to continue to drift down. Uh, we've got the rental income and the shelter effect coming through over the next several prints. Um, and we think PCE, which is what the Fed really looks at, 
uh, mm -hmm. is going to end up closer to 2% by the end of the year where they want it to be. What does that mean for U.S. equities? So for U.S. equities, we actually think this is a pretty decent environment. Uh, for, for the stock market broadly. Uh, we are coming in at a higher multiple to make it you know, a little bit more difficult. Market's not cheap, Eric. It is not. Two and a half times sales. Yeah, 19 and a half times forward, um, if you're looking at just the current estimates. So it's not cheap, but it's not an outrageously expensive level either. Another way to think about it, Brian, is basically the S&P's at the same level as it was two years ago, and we're at about one and a half, two turns lower um, as a, on a PE basis. So it's, it's not cheap, but it's not overly expensive either. One of my predictions, which I still have been too lazy to fully write up, we did it on the show, I got to write it, was that I thought the Brazilian market would do well. Tell me if I'm wrong. And is there a better place to invest in the world than the United States right now? Yeah, so we actually prefer the U.S., and we are also willing to be a little bit overweight the emerging markets broadly. Um, and within the emerging markets, there's some specific countries that we like. Um, Vietnam's a really good, interesting area. Not a lot of things you can do there. Vietnam, all guys, think about VinFast. <laughs> on, on a stock-specific basis, but our emerging markets portfolios have some pretty interesting uh, positions there. Why, why Vietnam? Uh, great economy, um, growing um, Good underlying sort of uh, rule of law from from a, uh, from that perspective, and frankly, some really interesting growth as we're seeing a lot of things shift out of China into that area. But you're bullish on the U.S. We are still positive on the U.S. Okay, you got some pretty good fund managers down there. A couple guys, with some you know weird Boston accents. But We've got a few of them, yeah. But they're okay. And by the way, I, you know, it's a lot of serious stuff going on right now. You made the journey up from Baltimore and slept out here, so I want to say because you probably can't. Happy 60th wedding anniversary to your parents. Thank you so much, Brian. Today. That's awesome. Today. Today, January 11th. 60. So it's some good news in a troubled world. In a troubled world. Congrats to them. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you, Eric. We'll Appreciate see you again. It. Be well. All right. So let's take a look at what happened to your money in the markets today. Kind of a, a mixed bag. In fact, the NASDAQ, a rare unchanged day. Look at that. S&P down a touch, Dow up. I mean, when I say a touch, like a cat whisker. All right. On to your stud and dud of the day. And I got something in common. Best performing stock in the S&P? Streaming company Netflix up 3%. The worst performer, streaming company Paramount down 5 and other stuff, down 5.5%. There you go. All right. A lot of fast-moving headlines for the Middle East right now, but it's not all that is going on. And up next, off to the races. Bitcoin ETFs are making a wild debut. How many more cryptos could be right behind? Plus, potential big warning for Tesla investors, courtesy of one big rental car company. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. It was another big day for crypto. The first official trading day for 11 new Bitcoin ETFs, and it went big, with nearly $5 billion bucks worth of shares traded today, just one day after the SEC's approval. Kate Rooney is here to break down the action in this brand-new market and what may be coming tomorrow. Kate. Hey, Brian. Yeah, so nearly $5 billion changed hands around those Bitcoin ETFs today. Grayscale and iShares, that's BlackRock's ETFs, were responsible for about 75% of total Dollar volume today, about half of today's trading across those 11 ETFs came in just the first 90 minutes of market hours. This is now very much a race for investor dollars. Portfolio managers I'm talking to say there's really only room for three or maybe five of these ETFs long term with almost identical products. They're trying to differentiate on brand name 
marketing and fees. New investors may feel a bit more comfortable using those household names, take Fidelity or BlackRock, for example, that both have ETFs. There will be also a lot of advertising dollars poured into this race. And then there's the fee war. Kathy Wood's ARC is among those competing at zero at first and then plans to go to 0.21%, which is around where the others are pricing. She's positioning her firm as the most pro-Bitcoin, says her firm isn't looking to maximize profits on the ETF either. I do think that the fees make a difference. We have approached this differently from uh, some others. We believe that Bitcoin is a public good. It is what we what we have here. We believe is a financial superhighway. It is the layer of the internet that developers did not build in in the early 90s because no one ever foresaw commerce or financial services, a public good. And so we're not looking to maximize profits here. Asset manager Grayscale also emerging as a big winner in part because it already had $28 billion roughly in assets. Grayscale converted its publicly traded fund, GBTC, into an ETF. It's also got a noticeably higher price point, charging 1.5%. Taxes are one factor that could insulate Grayscale from some of the outflows. Those who own Grayscale's trust might want to switch to that lower cost option, but they would need to pay capital gains if they did decide to sell out. So they might decide that the switch cost, as it's also known, is too high. Bitcoin hit its highest level in two years today amid all of us. It fizzled a bit later in the day. Ether also rallied as well. Investors are very much cheering this news. Not the sentiment, though, that we're hearing across Washington, D.C. You had SEC Chair Gary Gensler with a pretty hostile statement last night. And then Senator Elizabeth Warren weighing in. She just tweeted that the SEC was wrong with respect to the Bitcoin ETF decision. She said if the SEC is going to let crypto burrow even deeper into our financial system, then it's more urgent than ever that crypto follow basic anti-money laundering rules. Brian, back over to you. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, Kate, uh, really, Kate got all of us sort of thinking about this, and this is pretty amazing. There are almost 23,000 cryptocurrencies in the world. Some are big and expensive, some trade for fractions of a penny. And as we've discussed, the Bitcoin approval could, could open the floodgates for other crypto-based ETFs like Ether, for example. In fact, we thought, hey, we'll make up our own last call coin right now if we wanted to. There are a number of ways to do it. Easiest path is to use existing blockchain. Here's how in sort of the simplest terms per our friends at Investopedia. First thing is you choose which blockchain should host your token. Then you create the token. You can use coding skills if you have them. We do not. Or you just copy a common code off the Internet and voila, you can now mint your own new currency token, kind of like a FTX did to wide success. So if it's that easy, where does the SEC draw the line on ETF approval for all these other cryptos? Let's bring in Anthony Scaramucci, crypto expert and founder of Skybridge Capital. It's a good question, Anthony. You think we'll, you, do you think, A, we will get, say, an Ether ETF? And if yes, how far down the line do we go? Well, I want to be an OG on Brian Coin, so uh, I'm sending my <laughs> cell phone number. It's worthless. You keep me, give, give me a heads up. I want to make sure I'm in there. But BS Coin. As it, relates, as it relates to ETH, the deadline is in May, and so it'll be very interesting to see what happens because the cabal is sort of the access of regulatory evil. This would be Gary Gensler and Senator Elizabeth Warren. They don't want to follow the D.C. Circuit or the laws that are actually in place, and so— uh, you know, the law states very clearly 
you can't be arbitrary and capricious as a regulator. You've already got an ETH futures, the same way you had a Bitcoin futures back in November of 2021. So the deadline is in May. It would make sense for them to approve it. Now, could they do procedural things to delay it? Sure, they did that. It costs investors money. Uh, and uh, it left a lot of people in grayscale, those very high fees, so on and so forth. Uh, I'm hoping that they approve it in May, but I'm skeptical of these people until they're eventually removed from office. Okay. Well, by the way, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and I don't think I have the tweet in front of me, so I'm not, I'm not going to quote it because I don't have it. I'm just going to summarize it, came out and basically criticized the SEC for this. I mean, there we go. Oh, great work, guys. I'll read this to you if you missed it. The SEC is wrong on the law and wrong on the policy with respect to the Bitcoin ETF decision. If the SEC is going to let crypto burrow even deeper into our financial system, then it's more urgent than ever that crypto follow basic anti-money laundering rules. That's actually not from tonight, or I think it was. Maybe earlier today. Yeah, it was, it was What's your tonight. take on it? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, she feels like she's now bought and paid for by the uh, National Banking Association. So maybe they wrote that tweet for I don't know. But here's what I really think about her. Uh, she knows better. She was a Harvard Law School professor. She understands the law. She understands the legal precedents. She understands the administrative law, uh, but she doesn't like the law. And so that's why she's saying that. And this is the wonderful thing about our country. We have a decentralized government, a very flat system, lots of checks and balances. These two autocratic type of people, Gensler and Warren, tried to block something that was in place and tried to block something that the public wanted. You may remember the Uber situation. The regulators did not want Uber. Uh, but the people wanted Uber and the people went out in a democracy. And so these two guys, uh, they will go on the ash heap of regulatory history eventually, thank God. Uh, and this industry is here to stay. It will flourish and grow. And as Kathy said, uh, this is a layer and these are protocols that we're going to be using to de-layer financial services, make it cheaper mm -hmm. and really help the underbanked out there that Elizabeth Warren is supposedly for but she's obviously not anymore. Okay, uh, outside of the regulatory issue, something kind of if you if you can get her to debate me on your show, I'll come anytime, any place. So just throwing that out there because I know she debated my mentor Ken Langone one day on Squawk. If you can get her on the show, love to debate her. Uh, I'm sure she's a nice person, but she is really off base on this stuff. Yep, got a lot of respect for the senator. So happy to happy to put the offer out there. Uh, uh, outside of that, it was a little weird today. First day of trading, great. Bitcoin up, but the ETFs went down. Any idea why? Well, I think there was a lot of selling from Grayscale. So Grayscale has uh, high fees there. Uh, people are trying to find a lower fee solution. Uh, some of those people, I think, uh, Kate is right. They're not going to sell because they've got these uh, low bases. They don't want to pay the taxes. Uh, but there's a lot of people in there that may have losses. Or maybe they bought Bitcoin 50, 60,000 in the Grayscale Trust. And they were unloading that today. And so, you know, it was it was a net flattish behavior. But what I really did like is over three billion dollars of net inflows into Bitcoin. Uh, and of course, remember, Wall Street's in a quiet period on an ETF like this. They really can't get the marketing engines fired up uh, for a little while. And once they do, I predict that these prices will reach all time highs. 
All-time highs above 60-some thousand and change. Anthony Scaramucci, really appreciate it. The debate offer open as well. Anthony, thank you. Have a good night. Good to be here. Thank you. All right. Coming up, how Hertz could be signaling major pain for Tesla. Plus, Microsoft briefly snatching the crown of the most valuable company in the world from Apple. What's the better buy? Yeah, nice. Here. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. At some point, the reality of, of EVs and Teslas being the best-selling car will at some point render them the best rental car. It's not yet. So we may have been ahead of ourselves in the context of how quickly that will happen, but that will happen. All right, welcome back to Last Call. That was Hertz CEO Stephen Scher earlier today on CNBC because there was big news today from Hertz. After betting big on Tesla, Hertz shocking everyone by saying it is going to sell. 20,000 of its EV rental fleet, most of them are Teslas, and go back to gas-powered cars. Hertz said that customers' demand simply is not there, and high repair costs also a reason to sell the cars. Remember that EVs can often have far higher repair costs than others. The question, though, for investors is whether this fire sale will hurt Tesla at all, because Hertz is selling many of the cars for around 20,000 bucks. That could also expose fewer customers to the car, because it's not available to rent. Tesla stock fell today. It's now a pretty bad losing streak, at least for Tesla, now down 13% over three months. Longtime Tesla bull and Wedbush Managing Director Dan Ives with us. Dan, welcome. What is your take on this news? It's a black eye for Hertz. I, look, I think they clearly miscalculated in terms of the way this was going to you know, ultimately play out. But I don't view it as much of a negative for Tesla. I think the way Hertz went about it from the marketing of the vehicle to the distribution was a disaster. And clearly, I think that's what some of the investors right now are digesting. Yeah, you know, if you re- I, I rented an EV once, and, you, and I know how to work them, but some people don't. They just kind of leave you to, not yeah. just hurt. By the way, not just hurts. They leave you to the wind. You better know what you're doing. <laughs> Get in the car, and you're like, this is a whole different driving experience. So that point now, are you worried that these 20,000, my guess is high mileage, pretty beaten up Model 3s being flooded onto the market via Hertz, because Hertz does sell cars. People don't realize that. Will damage Tesla's near-term sales? I don't believe so. I mean, like, I, if we look at ultimate demand that's happening in the U.S. and even in China, I think they're actually having a bit of a rebound as we go into 2024. I think this is an overreaction. Look, right now, there's a lot of dark clouds from perception perspective when it comes to Tesla. I think they come out flexing the muscles when it comes to guidance, you know, in, in a few weeks when they guide. This is a black eye moment for Hertz, not for Tesla. Okay. All right. There you go. Let's move on. I want to switch gears a little bit because today something pretty interesting happened in the stock market. Apple briefly, and I mean very briefly, passed Apple, Microsoft rather, dethroned Apple as the biggest U.S. and really global company for just about one minute. Okay, but of the two, so now let's they're the exact, basically the exact same size. Yep. Which one is the better bet? Look, the AI revolution—it's starting with Nvidia the, and the Godfather of AI in Jensen. 
but it's really Redmond. I mean, what Nadell is doing, he's transforming AI, and I believe Microsoft will be a $4 trillion market cap in the next 12 to 15 months. I still believe Apple is the better stock in terms of this year because I think there's a renaissance of growth happening in Cupertino. But what this really speaks to, the monetization of AI, it's here, this revolution. And it's really starting with Microsoft and what Nadell is doing. Okay, there you go. I'm just kind of waiting for the headline that uh, where Apple buys a big AI player because they're, they're going to have to do something. Oh, I believe in 2024, they will buy an AI player. They, they play chess, others play checkers. See, look at this. Simpatico, we've got the mind meld going here because, you know, this is good, but can't rely on this forever. All right. Coming up, more in the breaking developments out of the Middle East with the president just releasing a statement on U.S. and British strikes against Houthi targets. By the way, the U.S. sending fighter jets into the Yemeni capital. We'll give you much more coming up. All right, welcome back to Last Call. We've got a lot of breaking developments out of the Middle East right now. The U.S. and the U.K. have launched military strikes on Houthi targets inside Yemen, including the capital. And now President Biden just out with a statement on the military action. Eamon Jabbers has more from D.C. Eamon. Brian, it's a lengthy statement from the president of the United States. Here's what he says. He says, today, at my direction, U.S. military forces, together with the United Kingdom and with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands, successfully conducted strikes against a number of targets in Yemen used by Houthi rebels to endanger freedom of navigation in one of the world's most vital waterways. The president goes on to say that these strikes are in direct response to unprecedented Houthi attacks against international maritime vessels in the Red Sea, including the use of anti-ship ballistic missiles for the first time in history. The president says the response to, uh, of the international community to these reckless attacks has been united and resolute. Uh, he also says today's defensive action follows this extensive diplomatic campaign and Houthi rebels escalating attacks against commercial vessels. These targeted strikes are a clear message that the United States and our partners will not tolerate attacks on our personnel or allow hostile actors to imperil freedom of navigation in one of the world's most critical commercial routes. So, Brian, uh, confirmation here of these strikes now from the president of the United States, an explanation for them, uh, and uh, a detail of the history here. There was a diplomatic effort to resolve this. That diplomatic was effort was unsuccessful, and now these military strikes. No information now uh, from the White House on exactly what the targets were in Yemen, uh, any indication of how successful or unsuccessful these strikes were or any follow-up action that's planned, but a statement now from the president of the United States, Brian. Yeah, and what we're getting, and again, we're getting bits here and bits there, Eamon. I'm sure you're closer to it in D.C., fighter jets, Tomahawk missiles off of naval ships, and at least one report I saw said that these attacks were not on the Houthi rebels sort of in some camp out in the desert, that these attacks were in Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen. Yeah, as I sit here, we, we don't have confirmation of that, Brian. But uh, look, I mean, the, the concern about this is, first of all, that it's effective, right? I mean, you want to make sure that if you're going to take this kind of action, it does the trick in terms of stopping these attacks, allowing commerce to proceed through uh, the Gulf there in, into the Red Sea. Uh, all of the, the delays and everything that we've been talking about on CNBC for days and weeks now, uh, that that issue is resolved and that you do it in a way 
that doesn't draw the Iranians into it because, of course, the connection between the Houthis and the Iranian military. So, uh, you know, some concerns there about broadening the conflict in the region. Uh, but uh, clearly, the Biden administration saying tonight that this was justified and necessary military action. Eamon Javers, NDC, with the breaking developments. Eamon, thank you very much. You bet. All right, let's see how things are reacting to this news. We do have trading after hours. Crude oil, as you might imagine, is up. Maybe not quite as much as you might imagine. Crude oil is up 2% right now to 73.47. Keep in mind, crude oil had been higher just a couple of weeks ago. Now, as we talked about earlier with Halima Croft, this is in parts of the Red Sea. If this were to spread to Iran or parts of the Persian Gulf, then all bets may be off with oil. You could probably see a much, much bigger spike if this were to spread more into Iran, parts of Iraq, or the Persian Gulf, gold prices also moving up. Not a lot. Again, just under 1%. But the price of COMEX gold, which is already sitting right at a record, 2035 an ounce, up 8 tenths of 1%. Stock futures, after a very sort of almost completely unchanged day, they're looking the same way as well. Dow, NASDAQ, I mean, we're talking about fractional moves here, folks. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot that could still happen. All right, for action on this and also with sort of what may happen for the year based on history, let's bring in Carson Group Chief Market Strategist Ryan Dietrich. Ryan, I want to get to your awesome historical views and trading patterns of what happened and what may happen, but this is all happening real time right now. I would imagine you and your team are very closely monitoring what is happening in the Middle East because if this does ramp up and oil spikes to 85 or 90, things change. Uh, you're right, Brian. Good good evening, and thanks for having me back. And it is early. Like I said, futures are virtually flat. We're not seeing too much volatility yet. I mean, that one of the things that we've stressed time and time again, and I've come on with you talk about this. You know, ge geopolitics and war. I mean, nobody likes it, right? They, there's people going to be there's going to be pain. People might pass away. But the truth is, if the economy is strong, and if if and we can get in all this stuff, it can um, you know kind of. Look past it. And I know that sounds harsh to say, but that's kind of what we've seen before. So let's hope this kind of works its way through the system pretty quickly and we can move forward. But the truth is our economy's strong and that can make up for a lot of sins when you look around the world. Yeah, and you're exactly right. I mean, listen, obviously safety and everything. We've already seen mm -hmm. U.S. service people injured in Iraq. This is yeah. a scary, intense situation. But outside of that, the and let's hope this ratchets down and sort of moves on mm -hmm. as quickly as possible with minimal damage. Outside of that, I saw a fascinating tweet from a guy named Ryan Dietrich, which is that when you look at years after a 20% gain on the S&P 500, of which there have been more than I actually thought, I was surprised at how many there had been, Ryan, the next year, meaning this year, usually ends up pretty good, but you might have some pain in the near term. You're right. I should follow that guy. Sounds like he knows what he's, he's amazing, talking about. Right? But Ryan yeah, I don't know. But yeah, but there's I, I found 20 times where we gained 20 percent on the S&P 500 before last year. The next year up 80 percent of the time, Brian, up a median of 12 percent. So, again, just because we're up a lot, we work with advisors every single day here at Carson. And the worry is we're up a lot. We're up a lot. We can't possibly be higher this year. Well, history would say, listen, you can be, especially if we avoid a recession like we think. But here's the catch. I took a look, like you said, those years up 20 percent. You tend to actually be negative on average around the middle of March. So Ides of March. So just be aware 
The, and by the way, Brian, the first quarter of an election year is usually not all that great either. I came with you a lot last year saying expect a big rally, you know, the pre-election stuff. But now early in an election year, it's normal. I think after the big rally we've seen, this, this consolidation is perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. Um, we're still optimistic. We just released our outlook today, our 2023 outlook. We still think we're in a bull market. I've been saying that with you for a while. We think stocks can gain low double digits this year. We can get into some of the, the weeds of that, but we think no recession. Stocks still look good. Just expect maybe some uh, consolidation first quarter in an election year. Perfectly normal. Yeah. Do you worry? Because I remember, I think it was 2016, the markets didn't do much for months ahead yeah. of the election. People didn't know what was going to happen. So they just kind of sat back and mm-hmm. waited. I, I wonder if, if, if that is a risk. And then if you're obviously bullish, you were right. One of the few people mm-hmm. that was bullish last year and you were very correct. Uh, this year, do you see the market really broadening out or is it still mm-hmm. going to be you know, yeah. seven or 20 stocks that just, you know, rule everything. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, we do think things are going to broaden out. And I know small caps and mid caps have come back to earth, right, so far this year. But, you know, the Russell 2 was up 22% the last two months last year, Brian. That was the third um, best two-month rally ever when you look at what happens next at the previous big jumps like that. I found up 27% on average a year later. If you look at the 10 best two-month rallies ever, we were just in there. So just think of that, that this upward momentum in small caps and mid caps, which should mean you're broadening out, is is legit. Now, back to 2016 for a second. I mean, 2016 was very ugly, right? To start the year, we Mm -hmm. had the manufacturing recession, dollar rally. So some things that we're not necessarily Mm -hmm. seeing now, but it was an election year. And and the bottom line, again, I took a look at this, you know, election years, when you have a negative midterm, like we did, right? Remember 2019, uh, sorry, 2022, negative. Eight out of the last eight times, an election year was higher. Okay, so that's again, a, these things, there's all these stats and figures, but election year is normally higher, Brian. Eight of eight. I wasn't a math major, but I think that's a hundred percent. Ryan Dietrich. Yeah. Thank you very. I'm getting the hook. Coming up. Okay. Bill Ackman ramping up his battle with Business Insider. Can the media company beat back the billionaire? All right, another news. Tensions remain hot between Pershing Square CEO Bill Ackman, Business Insider, and its owner, the German media company Axel Springer. Now, last week, if you're not following it, BI posted an article alleging that Ackman's wife, Mary Oxman of MIT, plagiarized parts of her doctoral dissertation. Mary Oxman has admitted she left out quotation marks for some of the work, mostly from Wikipedia, and apologized for the error. But the controversy has sent Ackman on the warpath against BI and Axel Springer, Yale University journalism lecturer and CNBC contributor Joanne Lippman here with more. Sorry it's so tight. So much breaking news, Joanne. What do you make of this fight and Ackman just digging in? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Brian. So, look, we know powerful people are always trying to bully their way into pulling news stories. It's very common to anyone in our business. You know that as well as anybody. They're trying to intimidate journalists. They're trying to prevent the public from knowing information they want to keep secret. I mean, you know, I've been a journalist, a reporter, an editor-in-chief for the past three decades. I have seen this countless, countless times. And in my experience, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And we've seen it historically, going back to the, you know, the Nixon administration trying to quash information about Watergate, Harvey Weinstein trying to quash reporting about the Me Too claims against him. Um, so, yeah, we've seen this. And generally, in, in all of those cases and in any case I have ever been involved in, Publishers do not waver. The owners don't waver. And I have to say that is critical to protecting the freedom of the press, the freedom for reporters to go where the story takes them and to provide information to the public. Yeah. And of course, 
I agree with that. In in principle, do you think it's fair for B.I. because Wackman waged war against Harvard and, and the president and former president, Claudine Gay, to go after his wife? Well, go after. I mean, they're reporting. They looked at information. Look, it's they're reporting factual information. As far as I understand it, mm -hmm. you can question news judgment for that or for any other um, article that you wish to, but at the essential idea here is they have they have used their news judgment. They have checked their facts. The story has not been corrected, and so there really isn't much of a uh, fight to be had if uh, uh, for an organization that is publishing factual information. People can yell and scream and say, "I wish you hadn't reported that." Uh, but that's yeah. that's very different than, you know, you got your facts and that's you're fair you're enough. fair enough. Join Libman. I will say I don't believe I think, correct me if I'm wrong, people out there who know more. You don't need quotation marks to cite Wikipedia because it's not really a source. It's just a bunch of people writing stuff. But that's a different issue. Join Libman. Thank Bye. you very much. Appreciate it. Have a I good night. But thank you. All right. Very welcome. All right. Coming up, the end of the hoodie era in New England. Former Cowboys coach Jason Garrett will join us on what may be next for Bill Belichick, the Pats, and previewing some of this weekend's games. All right, welcome back. And attention, football fans. NBC is bringing you not one, not two, but three big NFL games this weekend, including... The NFL's first ever exclusively live stream playoff game, Saturday night, only on Peacock. Sign up today. There's also, by the way, huge headlines from football. After 24 years, the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick are parting ways. Here's what the legendary coach said at his news conference today. I'll always be a Patriot. I look forward to coming back here. Uh, but at this time, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to move on. And uh, I look forward. I'm excited for the future. Now, Belichick leaving New England with six Super Bowl titles and NFL record. He also won 333 games, 14 shy of Don Shula's record. A few of those wins probably had something to do with a guy named Brady, but we digress. And here's something random but interesting. When Belichick took over as head coach in 2000, the Patriots were worth about $460 million. Now, the value $7 billion bucks, according to Forbes, a 1,400% increase. For more on Belichick, his legacy, and more importantly, the games of the wild card weekend, let's bring in NBC Sports NFL analyst Jason Garrett. He is in Kansas City, where he'll be at the game for the Dolphins, Chiefs, and what I'm told, Jason, and welcome. Good to see you. Could be one of, if not the coldest games of all time. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Belichick, uh, what do you make of the legacy? And would you have a are, are, are you in line for the job? <laughs> hey, happy new year, Brian. It's great to see you, man. Uh, you, you know, Coach Belichick is one of a kind. He, he really is. And uh, his legacy uh, speaks for itself. Uh, if you think about what they accomplished there in New England over the last 24 years, it's unprecedented really in any sport. And the stretch of, of winning they had over 20 years when Tom Brady was his quarterback, uh, it's it just hard to imagine the success they had. The division titles, the number of times they went to the championship game, the number of times they went to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl, it's hard to do. It's hard to do once. Great coaches, great quarterbacks have accomplished it once, maybe twice, and to do it for as long as they did, as well as they did, it's really pretty amazing. And uh 
What an amazing football coach, huge impact on players and coaches alike for so many years and just on a generation of football. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder, and we'll get to the games, but I, you know, I'm kind of wondering, is this a good gig? If you, the next coach, you got to follow Belichick. It's always tough to follow a legend, but let's dive into the games. And I want to begin with the game that you are at Saturday night, because there's this whole view. And I know the Dolphins are, I think, 0-10 in their last games when it's under 40 degrees or something like that. But is this the same Kansas City Chiefs team as the last couple of years, Jason? Because it does not look like it right now. I, I think they're a little different. There's no question about that. Uh, and let's start with the positives. They're really, really good on defense. They're one of the best defenses in the league. And uh, they're very good on all three levels. They have a dominant defensive lineman in Chris Jones. Uh, their defensive coordinator, Steve Spagnuolo, is one of the best and has been for a long time. And he has this young group of players playing at a very high level. So the identity of the team is different. Uh, Kansas City's defense is really taking the lead. And, and offensively, they've been trying to find their way all year long. You know, a number of different players have left their offense over the last couple of years. The most important one is still there, Patrick Mahomes, but he's getting used to a young crew of receivers, and they just haven't been quite as dominant all year long. Uh, you've seen in bits and pieces uh, that they've shown what they've been in the past, but it hasn't been as consistent. So it'll be interesting to see how they play. Can they embrace the new identity, maybe be a more physical team, a little bit less uh, high-flying as uh -huh. they've been in the past? But, but can they embrace this formula of running the ball and, and, and playing great defense and then in the big moments letting their quarterback take over? And I do think you alluded to the, the weather. They say it's going to be about zero degrees at kickoff. And, uh, you know, teams coming from South Florida to play in this kind of weather traditionally, yeah. it's a challenge for them. We had a good visit with Tua today in our production meetings, and he said he's ne he's never played in a game like this. He's never even been in this kind of weather. From and Hawaii. most guys haven't. And uh, <laughs> I haven't had a few cold games myself as a player and as a coach. It definitely impacts the game. So the team that yeah. can handle the weather and the conditions the best, they're going to be the team that wins. Quickly, what do you think about the Matt Stafford reunion in Detroit? I, I think the Lions, you know, they're a great team, but the Rams may be the most dangerous team in the NFL right now. Yeah, I love this matchup. We, we have it on NBC. Uh, Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth will be doing the game on Sunday night. And so many great storylines. Stafford coming back to Detroit where he was such a great player for so long. And, uh, you know, Jared Goff, having been with the Rams and Sean McVay early in his career, now he's leading the Lions. And the Lions over the last year and a half have been one of the best teams in the league. Their coach, Dan Campbell, is one of the absolute best guys. They built something special there. It's going to be a tough task for the Rams to go in there and win. But having a veteran quarterback, mm -hmm. having an outstanding coach in Sean McVay, that gives them a chance. And they're a fun team as well. they got some rookies stepping up. Puka Nakua, their receiver, has really emerged. So I think it's going to be a fun, a really fun game. And uh, I think if you're a football fan, you don't want to miss that one. No, and we're not going to miss the, the, uh, the Dolphins Chiefs on Peacock with you and the team freezing your you-know-what's-off. But we appreciate <laughs> it. Jason Garrett, we'll look at you get, get back to game prep, and we'll see you on Saturday night. Thank you very much, Jason. Right, great seeing you, man. Happy 24 to you. Thank you very much. You too. All right, that is it for us. Tune in live tomorrow night for a special playoff edition of Can I Beat the Books? We're taking a 33-22-1 record into Super Wild Card Weekend. 
plus all the big money headlines, of course, just for you. We'll see you tomorrow on Last Call. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.